welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Ruth. It's right there in the Old Testament, just not too far in. The book of Ruth. Uh, we're in a series that we're calling Redeemed, and what we're doing is we're just preaching through the book of Ruth. We're just looking at it verse by verse. Uh, we're, we're not really doing uh, sermons in this series, like, you know, here's three points, and this is what it said. But we're just reading some scripture, talking about it, reading some scripture, talking about it. So it's kind of a narrative. We're following along that way. Um, but that's where we are. We're going to look at Ruth chapter 2 this week. If you weren't here last week, I'll, I'll do a quick recap to try to get you caught up to where we are in the story. The book of Ruth takes place in the time of the judges, and this is a very dark time in Israel's history, and in particular, the city of Bethlehem, um, there is a famine going on. Many of you remember Bethlehem plays some significant uh, parts in Scripture, but right now, it's not doing so well. Uh, there's no food, there's no water. Interestingly enough, the name Bethlehem means house of bread, but there is no bread in Bethlehem at this time. In Bethlehem, there's a family, and the, the father of the family, his name is Elimelech. Now, Elimelech's name means my God is king, but at no point in this story does Elimelech behave like his God is king. In fact, as he's looking around in the famine, he feels like God isn't doing his part, so, so Elimelech needs to um, come in and provide because God isn't. And so he has a wife, and her name is Naomi. Naomi means sweetness, or my God is sweet. And by the end of chapter 1, Naomi is telling people, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I am very bitter, I'm very angry. God has not been kind to me, he's mean, and I don't like him all of that much, is essentially kind of what is going on. And so, so before that, while Elimelech and his wife and his boys were, were in Bethlehem, there's a famine, and so Elimelech decides to move his family from Bethlehem to Moab, which is about 40 miles away. The problem with that is Moab was a pagan nation. They served a demonic god named Chemosh who required people to worship him through human sacrifice. Chemosh, or Moab was absolutely no place for God's people, but there was food there, there was money there, there was opportunity for financial advancement there, and so Elimelech moves his family away from Bethlehem, away from God's people to the, the, to Moab so that he could preserve their life and most importantly, he wanted to preserve his legacy. The problem with that is about three verses later, after they moved to Moab, Elimelech and his two sons have all died. So they're all dead. Naomi is left there in Moab and she has two Moabite daughters-in-law in this pagan nation. Well, she knows that she doesn't have anybody there to take care of her. She doesn't have anybody back in Bethlehem to take care of her either. But she hears that in Bethlehem, there is food again. God has restored the rain. Um, God is blessing the people of Bethlehem again. And so she goes back to Bethlehem. Her two daughters-in-law decide to go with her. She's trying to talk them out of it. She says, ladies, I have nothing for you. One of them goes back home, goes back to Moab, goes back to Chemosh. But Ruth... The other Moabite daughter-in-law says, no, I'm coming with you. I'm going where you go. 
I, I don't want to serve Chemosh. I don't want to be in Moab. I want to serve Jehovah God. I want to place my heart in his hands. I want to place my future in his hands. I am going to surrender all that I was for all that I can be with God. And it's interesting that she is placing her faith in this God that Naomi keeps saying is unkind to her. But she makes this decision. She follows Naomi back to Bethlehem, and these two women do the first good thing. They make the first good decision that this family has made in this entire process by going back to Bethlehem and returning to God's people. Um, Ruth chapter 1 ends with this. It says, they arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of barley harvest. And so let's pick it up, chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who is a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. I want to read this to you out of the Message Bible, because I believe that it, encap it, it captures a theme that is so important. I want to read it to you this way. It says this, it so happened that Naomi had a relative by marriage, a man prominent and rich, connected with Elimelech's family. His name was Boaz. It so happened, or it just so happened. This is a critical theme in this book. This is a critical theme in this story, because this phrase shows us the primary way that God is going to bring about his will and bring about his blessings in this story. But I also believe that this it just so happened is one of the primary ways that God works in your life and in my life as well. We often go to God and we ask God to intervene. We ask God to come and interrupt our situation. If we have a need, if we have a sickness, if we have a financial need, or we're looking for a miracle, we go to God and we ask God to prove himself faithful, to show his hand mighty, and intervene in our situation. Oftentimes, we're going to God and we're asking God uh, for, for those miracles. We're believing for something supernatural. And if we don't see God splitting the Red Sea or multiplying fish and loaves or walking on water, we think God isn't moving. But the reality is the primary way that God works and moves in our lives and in the lives of his people is through his supernatural and invisible hand of providence. It's the supernatural and invisible hand of providence. And what God does is he takes these it just so happened moments. God works through our activities, our decisions. He works through these divine coincidences and these, these uh, uh, thankful accidents that were never accidents to begin with. And he uses this providence to bless his people. It just so happened sounds like a coincidence, but it never is because God is always directing his purposes in the lives of his people. And I want you to know something this morning. If you're here and you're in this place and you are one of God's people, he is working in your life. He is working in your life. If you don't have a relationship this morning with God, I want you to know he is actively pursuing you. It's no accident that you are here today. It may be it just so happened that I come, but it just so happened that you come because God wants to speak to you powerfully this morning. He is at work in your life. Psalms 37, chapter 23 says, The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. We often get discouraged when God seems distant and far away. In fact, one of the, uh, one of the main conversations that I'll have in like 
spiritual pastoral counseling with people is, is that they'll say, man, I can't hear God. I pray and, and, and God is distant. He's far away. I don't know where he is. I, I can't feel him. I can't see him. I just, I just feel like God has left me and abandoned me. But we often fail to realize that God is just out ahead of us working out every detail in our life so that we can walk into his blessing through a it just so happened moment. That those times when God seems far away, it's not because he's left us, it's because he's preparing us to walk into the great things that he has for us. And I believe that for many of you, as you're here in this place, as you're around God's people, as you are experiencing the presence of God like we felt through worship, you think that you're here by accident, but you're not. And God, for weeks and months and years, has been preparing you to walk in to his blessings. That's exactly what's going on here. So, so it goes on, verse two. It says, one day Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, remember Ruth was the, the daughter-in-law of Naomi that came back, gave her heart to the Lord, came back to, to Bethlehem with Naomi. So Ruth, her daughter-in-law, says to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Now, what's interesting in this story is that God is at work, yes, but so is Ruth, okay? God is at work, but so is Ruth. Now remember the situation they're in, Ruth and Naomi. They don't have anybody taking care, for, taking care of them. Chapter one tells us that Naomi told the people of Bethlehem, her friends, like this is a bad situation. I'm essentially homeless. And we get this sense that the people of Bethlehem or her friends were like, oh, that's too bad, but did nothing about it. And so there's nobody to watch out for them, nobody to take care of them, nobody is providing for them. They're in a really, really bad situation. But Ruth gets up and she's not complaining. She's not sleeping in late. She doesn't spend the entire morning in her pajamas watching Days of Her Lives eating chocolate. She doesn't do any of that stuff, right? She gets up, she gets to work, she gets after it. Now, we don't have any idea where these women are living. It seems that they're probably living on the streets somewhere or maybe holed up in a cave somewhere, but it doesn't appear that they're living with anybody because there's nobody to provide for them. Now, just a little bit of historical context to kind of set this stage. Um, it's a biblical law that God had instituted, and we see this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that anyone who owned land, if you were a landowner or a farmer, you had to keep the very, very outside edges where, where the crops don't grow great because the water would, would, would come in, and so it's those outside dry edges, you had to keep those unharvested so people could come and glean. Or if you were in the middle and you were harvesting Anything that would drop on the ground, you had to leave on the ground. So, so your workers, you'd go out there, they would cut, you'd want them to be as proficient as possible, but anything that fell to the ground had to stay on the ground because God said that anybody who was poor or without or didn't have anybody to, to provide or take care of them or didn't have a job, anybody was homeless, they could come in and pick that stuff up. It was essentially the Israelite welfare system. Now, it wasn't going to get you rich, you weren't going to uh, make a career out of this. This was barely enough to survive. It wasn't a, a free handout by any means, but if you were willing to work really, really hard, you could find, you could glean, you could pick up enough grain to help you survive for the day. However, just because it was the law doesn't mean that everybody necessarily allowed people to come into their place and glean. 
okay? Um, so Ruth knew that she had to find somebody who was going to be willing to allow a Moabite girl, a foreigner, somebody who was be considered an enemy of God to come in and um, benefit from God's law. Okay, so, so she knew she had to find the right place, the right person that was going to allow her to come in and glean. Besides, there, there most likely would have been some debate back then, as there is oftentimes now, where we wonder, does God's law, do God's characters and precepts and his principles, do they apply to the enemies of God as much as they do us, the friends of God? And so they would have been going through that whole debate, and we don't have time to go there, but man, that is a debate today, yes? Do those laws apply universally? And so she goes out knowing that her circumstances are stacked against her, and she trusts only in the character and the kindness of God. But you have to remember, gleaning isn't easy. This is hard, difficult, back-breaking work, barely enough to survive, and so there was no time for sitting around. So Ruth gets up. She says, Naomi, I'm going to go out. I'm going to see if I can find a place to glean. We're going to see if we can um, eat today. Verse 3. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened... If you're a highlighter or a circler, circle those three words, as it happened, or it just so happened that she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. So we're going to pause for a second, and I know I'm talking super fast. We're going to try to get through all of this content today, but we're going to pause just a second and talk about Boaz a little bit, because Boaz is a very important character in this story. You're going to see Boaz sort of rise as a hero here. And so Boaz was a little bit of a man's man. Scripture tells us that he was a worthy man. He would have been a man of war. He would have had some military experience. He would have been a commander, um, just, just a strong leader, very tough and very knowledgeable in everything that he does. And so he was a man of war. He was a man of wealth. He had lots of money. He owned land. He employed people. And so he was doing very, very well financially. He's also a man of wisdom. In, in the city, he would have been somebody that they would go to for advice. He would have known the political system. He, he would have known agriculture. He, he would have just known everything. And so he was somebody in, in the city that people would go to often to, to seek advice, encouragement, you know, what should I do about this, and those sort of things. He understood the culture very, very well. But he was also a man of worship. He loved the Lord, and he wasn't just sort of a Sunday Christian, right? He was a Christian that would serve the Lord every single day. God was a big part of his life. God was a central part of his life. Jesus at the center of his life, right? And so he lived what he would sing on Sunday. And so this was Boaz. He was a man's man. He was defender of the innocent, protector of the weak. Boaz was the real deal. If you are a lady, Boaz is the kind of guy that you want to marry. If you're a man, Boaz is the kind of guy that you want to be. At every juncture, his motives and his intentions are pure and righteous. Even next week, when we see that Boaz finds himself in a little bit of a compromising situation, his behavior, his actions, and his speech represent a man of character and integrity. So this is Boaz. 
He comes rolling up to his field on his horse, his chariot, whatever he's rolling in that day. And, and he sees his workers and he calls out to them, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. And they holler back to him. And the Lord bless you too. And so there's blessings all around. They're, they're glad to see him. He cares about the, the spiritual well-being of the people he works with and the people who work for him. And, and, and I think that it's important for us to to make sure that wherever we find ourselves or whatever level of influence we find ourselves in, if, if we have people working under us or working with us, we need to be mindful and we need to care about and for the spiritual well-being of the people that we are surrounded with. God has put you in a position of influence for a purpose and we can't just use that influence to, to, um, uh, to increase the bottom line. We need to use that influence to increase the bottom line of heaven because that's really the only thing that will ever last and I know it sounds very arrogant from a pastor because this is my job but the only thing that you do that will last for eternity is what you do for God it's just true it's just true. And so use your level of influence, like Boaz did, to bless, to pray for, to be a spiritual influence over the people that he is surrounded with. And it just so happened, think about this, it just so happened that Naomi and Ruth arrived at the beginning of barley harvest. And it just so happened that they had no money. And it just so happened that um, Boaz allowed people to come and glean in his field. And it just so happened that Ruth ended up in Boaz's field. And it just so happened that Boaz shows up on the very first day that um, Ruth is out there. And it just so happens that Boaz is rich and single. Come on. Come on. If you don't know how this story ends, I'll just give you a glimpse into it. It's going to end with a wedding and a baby, okay? And so the fact that Boaz is single is really, really good news. And what we begin to see in how lucky Ruth is, but what we begin to see is that God's invisible hand of providence is beginning to take shape. We're seeing God's invisible hand of providence begin to reveal itself in a very, very real way. So let's keep going. Verse 5, Boaz comes up, he says to his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. And so Boaz, think about this, Boaz comes up, he blesses his men, his men bless him. It, 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 it very it really looks like his men are happy to see him. And that would have been just such a strange thing that people are excited when the boss comes around. Has that ever happened at your work, right? Yay, the boss is here. No, it's like, oh, great, here we go. But they're excited to see him. He's excited to see them. And he comes up, he surveys the land. He looks over, he says, eh, something's out of place. Who's, who's this girl? And his foreman tells, tells him, like, Remember the Moabite girl that everybody's been talking about? That's her. And he says this, and I don't fully know how to interpret this, but Boaz says, who is she and who does she belong to? It sounds to me like he's saying, like, look, is she single? Like, did you check her Facebook status? What's it say? <laughs> what does it's complicated mean? I don't know. Like, help me out. Like, what's her story? What's, what's going on here? And, and we see that by the way Boaz responds down the road, that Boaz is instantly attracted to her. 
He just sees her, and there's something about it. He's just instantly drawn to her. And I don't believe for a second that it's a romantic attraction. I don't believe for a second that it's sexual attraction. I mean, think about this. Ruth is there. She has been homeless for some time now. She probably hasn't had a decent meal in several weeks. Um, And she's out here working all day. She probably didn't get her makeup on this morning. She probably doesn't look her best. Her deodorant has worn off hours ago, right? She's in one of those stages right now where she like can't even remember if she put deodorant on this morning. It's so funky. She's got dirt under her fingernails. She's got scratches everywhere. She's malnourished, hot, sweaty, and stinky. And um, Boaz is drawn to her. And what attracted Boaz to her was not her beauty, but listen, it was her character. It was her work ethic. It was who she was. There was something special about Ruth. Now, listen, if you're here today and you're single or dating, you're engaged, I want you to hear me this morning. There's a difference between a good time and a good legacy. There's a difference between a good time and a good legacy. And so if you are looking for a potential spouse, or if there's somebody that, that, that you think, maybe I could spend the rest of my life with this person, wh- how, who they are, their character, their integrity, their honor, their, their, their kindness, look for all of that stuff. Look for somebody who is going to be a good legacy. And so as Boaz was looking out, he sees this girl, and he instantly knows this is a legacy girl. This is somebody with high character. Verse 8, so Boaz went over and said to Ruth. Now listen, he's not putting the moves on her. Like like he's not spinning his, you know, ancient Israel Boaz game at her or anything like that. He's just being Boaz. This is who he is. And so Boaz goes over to her and he says to Ruth, listen, my daughter. And, And again, highlight that. Highlight my daughter. Because Ruth is a foreigner in a strange land. She would have been considered an enemy of God, an outsider. And Boaz goes up to her and he says, listen, my daughter. Instantly, he bridges this gap. He brings her in. He says, in this this field, around these people, you are not a foreigner. You are family, and I'm gonna treat you just like family. He instantly sets her at ease by calling her my daughter. He engages her in this process of familiarity. He wraps his arms of relationship around her, and he says, listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields, because here you are not going to be hurt. You are not going to be treated like an outsider. You are going to be treated like family. And Boaz takes the initiative, and he approaches Ruth. Now, we have to understand something that's cultural here. Under no circumstances did Ruth have any right or any privilege to approach, to go up and talk to Boaz. He was far too removed. He was far too important. He was the boss. He was the lord of the harvest, the head honcho. Ruth wasn't in any position to talk to Boaz, much less, you know, begin a relationship with him. But Boaz, knowing this, understanding the cultural implications, left where he was and went to her. And he calls her my daughter. He brings her in to a place of relationship where she now has access to him. And 
all through scripture, we see a thin red line. We, we, we call it the Jesus line. And so every verse in every book, Old Testament and New, we, we, we can see Jesus in this. And there's often times where you have to look really hard to kind of see that line, but you can see it. And this, this book of Ruth, this thin red line gets really, really big because we can see the gospel with massive clarity here. We can see the gospel. And I want you to think about this story, but then I also want you to look at it through the lens of the gospel. Because think about this. There's this huge divide between Boaz and Ruth that Ruth can never cross because of her status in life. And so if there was ever going to be a conversation, it had to be Boaz going to Ruth. So think about this. There is a gap, there is a divide between who God is and who we are. There is no possible way that we can cross this divide and make our way to God. We don't even know how to go to God. We, we wouldn't even think to, to come to him and, and ask for a relationship and, and all that he has for us. And because God knows that there is this divide that, that we can never cross because scripture tells us that the way to have relationship with God is perfection and there's not too many of us that are perfect in here this morning so we can't cross that gap and so because God knows that God puts on flesh and he comes to us this is the gospel because we could never approach God and God knows that God sends his son Jesus to come and surround us with relationship he calls us brothers and sisters he calls us sons and daughters he doesn't call us foreigners he calls us family and because God approached us we can with joy and confidence enter into the family of God but listen yep but listen we could never approach him he had to come to us this is the gospel. And Boaz is telling Ruth, I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will give you the best that I can possibly give. You will have advantages if you stay close to me. I will keep you safe if you stay close to me. Your life will be better if you stay close to me. Again, this sounds a lot like the gospel. Basically, he's telling her, and this is my paraphrase. You can read it there. He says, you will not be treated like a foreigner here in my field. From now on, you stay away from the outside edges where the gleaners are. You are going to work right here in the middle amongst my young women. Stay away from the gleaners right here in the middle. And he says, don't worry about being treated poorly. Don't worry about being given a hard time or being harassed. He, he essentially institutes the first sexual harassment policy that we have on record. He tells, he tells her, nobody's going to mess with you. I've already told my guys that if they mess with you or if they give you a hard time, I'm going to go bury them in another field. And i got lots of fields, and so nobody will ever find them. It's going to be all good. So, so you just you come, you work right here in my field, behind my women, behind my workers. And if anybody gives you a hard time, they're going to have to deal with me. Now, remember the law. The, the, the law that we talked about, about the gleaning. Under the law, Boaz was required to allow her to glean. Basically, she could gather enough scraps to survive if she was willing to work really, really, really hard. That's what the law said. But what Boaz does is Boaz sees the law and exceeds the law. Okay? Boaz goes far beyond the law, and he is now operating in the realm of grace. The gospel right here is on full display, and grace is amazing. 
We sing amazing grace and we forget the power of those words because every time we see grace displayed, we just kind of stand in awe. Like it doesn't make sense. What's curious is that we all want grace. We all really want people to be gracious to us. We want God's grace. But, but most of us will only go as far as the law requires. Again, think about this. Boaz was required to allow her to glean. Nothing more. Boaz moves beyond the law into this realm of grace. And grace always goes beyond the law. We always try to hide behind the bare minimum of the law when, when, when it's something that, that, that God is always moving beyond the law into this realm of grace. And real grace can often be unsettling. It's often just so strange and so beyond us, it just doesn't compute with us that, that it can be unsettling. Verse 10, it was for Ruth, because she says, what have I done to deserve such kindness? I am only a foreigner. In this, Ruth is asking a very obvious question. Why are you being so nice to me? I'm a foreigner, I'm a pagan, like I'm an enemy of God. Like what, what are you doing? Why are you being so nice? Ruth was damaged goods. She knew this. She came from a pagan family. She was broke. She had no home. She was on welfare. She was dirty, stinky, smelly, like malnourished. She wasn't really a catch. You know what I mean? She wasn't deserving of all of this kindness. But she was also strong enough and smart enough to know that she was in a position that, that she could be easily manipulated, easily abused, easily taken advantage of. And she was, she's like, what's your deal here? What, what's, what's your game? Like, why are you being so nice to me? Ruth is smart enough to know that this doesn't make sense. Boaz is everything a girl could want in a man. He's tall, dark, handsome, and wealthy. She's completely undesirable, a foreigner, homeless, a prime candidate for abuse. Why are you being so nice to me? This doesn't make sense. This doesn't compute. I know the way the world works. This isn't the way the world works. What's your deal? Why are you being so nice? Grace never makes sense. Grace never makes sense. And listen, I want you to see this. This isn't just a good story. It's a gospel story. This is the gospel. And we have to understand the extent of grace that God has given us. Think about this. Why would God approach us? Why would God do that? We have nothing to offer him. Why would God send his son to live amongst us, to, to be tempted, to be hurt, to be tired, to be hungry, to go through all things that we go through, and then at the end be beaten and abused and whipped and spit on and mocked in worship and stripped naked and nailed to the cross? Why would God do that? We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Does God need a relationship with us? Is there like a human-shaped hole in God's heart that we fill? Absolutely not. God doesn't need anything from us, and there's nothing that we can give God that will fulfill him. God is in himself fulfilled. He's God. So why would God do that? Have we done anything to deserve it? Absolutely not. We're all sinners, spiritually bankrupt, 
We've been raised in a dark, pagan world that has turned its back on God. We have absolutely nothing to offer God in exchange for his kindness to us. We are damaged goods. Why would God be so kind? Why would God do this? He doesn't have to. The law doesn't require God to do this. The law just says we have to be perfect to have a relationship with God. We're not. We're out of luck. But he moves beyond the law into the realm of grace. And grace is so, so good for us. Grace is amazing. Grace doesn't make sense. And so we need to time and time and time come back to the cross, come back to God and say, God, why have you been so kind to me? See, we who are in the faith, we've been in the faith for so long, we get angry at God and we feel like we've, we deserve this. You have to do this for me. But no, we need to come back to God and say, why have you been so kind? What have I done? I, I don't deserve this. Like, what's your deal? This doesn't make sense. I find this. You have been so good to me. Like, why? 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 And it's not because we are special. It's because God is special. It's not because we are lovable because we're not. It's because God is just so lovely. This is, this is my grace. Then Boaz does two things. First, he encourages her. He says, man, look, look Ruth, I've, I've seen everything that you've done. I see how you left your family and uh, you're taking care of Naomi. Man, I see character in you. I see potential in you. And then he prays for her, verse 12. He says, may the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. And then something else happens. Boaz immediately becomes the answer to his own prayer. So not only does he pray that God would bless and reward, he begins to bless. So he becomes the answer to his own prayer. How many times have you told somebody, you, you hear their story and it's a sad story, and you're like, oh man, that stinks, and, and you tell them, man, I'm going to pray for you, and, and you kind of use that, I'm going to pray for you as this excuse not to do anything. Nobody's willing to raise their hands, but I know you're out there, because we do, we do. Hey, I'll pray for you. And you're like, well, I could do something, but I'm not going to because it's going to inconvenience me. We hope that our prayers will move the hand of God, but sometimes our prayers need to move us. Yes? And at some point, we need to stop just praying and start being the source that God is going to use to answer our own prayer. And that's exactly what Boaz does. Look what happens in verse 14. Boaz fires up the grill. Apparently, he has... He has um, you know, decided that today is going to be a, a staff appreciation meal, and so he's there, he fires up the grill, he's, he's feeding all of his workers, and now you have to remember that as Boaz shows up and he brings out the barbecue, he's feeding his workers, that people who are there gleaning have no access to the barbecue. They're not invited, okay? And so Boaz, in verse 14, calls to her, he says, come over here, Ruth, and, and, and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. So basically, he tells Ruth, you know, come over here, we're going to feed you. How do you like your steak? Right? And, and he begins to, to, to cook it up for her. He invites her. He said, look, I've already told you you are my daughter. I've already told you you're a part of the team. I've already told you you're in the family. And so you, now you get to enjoy the benefits of being a part of the family. And not only did, did um, Boaz give her enough to feed her belly, but he, he gave her enough to take home to also feed 
uh, Naomi. Now, you know, he's kind of a smooth criminal. You know, I don't know if this is kind of his end game, but he's saying, you know, let's feed the mother-in-law as well. You know, this is going to get me in good. You know, it's going to work out for him real well relationally in the end. And so, you know, he's kind of a smooth guy here. I don't know if this is what he's trying to do, but it's working for him. And one other thing that I want you to notice, I think it's important for us to see, is who serves Ruth. Listen to this. Watch this, because you got to see the gospel in this. Boaz isn't sitting at the head of the table, and, and he's not waiting. He doesn't call his servant. He doesn't call the intern over. He doesn't call the, the, you know, the, the greenhorn over and say, hey, go give that girl over there some food too. Go ask her if she wants anything to eat. He gets up, he goes to her, and he is the one that serves her. But you have to remember, in this society, because of his position and his rank, he shouldn't serve anybody. He shouldn't be serving anybody. People should be serving him. But he gets up. He takes the bowl over to Ruth. He grabs a big scoop of it, plops it down on her plate, and she's like, wow, thank you. Nope, you need some more. Nope, you need some more. You know, like your grandma does, right? The Lord of the harvest is serving the foreign pagan. Like, who does this look like to you? Doesn't this look like Jesus? When he came and, and, and he served humanity and he got down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of the disciples and they're like, oh, this isn't how this is supposed to be. But Jesus is showing them this is what the gospel looks like. And after dinner, Ruth was the first one up and she was the first one back out to the fields even though she had some leftover food and, and, and literally that meal would have been more food in that one 15-minute moment than she would have hoped to glean all day. So she's already made more than she was expecting in that one meal, aside from working all morning. But she gets back up and she heads back out to the field and she's the first one out and she's working hard and she doesn't slow down and she's a woman of character and she's a woman of work and she's a woman of integrity. And when she gets up and goes to work, verse 15, when Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men. He says, guys, gather around, come here. We're gonna have another meeting. He says, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. Essentially, he's saying, guys, come here. Um, she's not working on the edges anymore. She's working right behind you. Anything that drops behind her, don't you touch. In fact, at the end of the day, we're going to um, um, cut some grain. We're going to tie it up. We're going to package it up really nice. And then we're going to go to her right at her feet, and we're going to drop it so she can pick that up too. Do you guys understand what I'm saying to her? And he, he's saying this. He said, I'm giving her a job. The only difference between her job and your job is that she gets to keep 100% of what she makes today. She doesn't turn anything back into me. She gets to keep it all, all of it. Are we clear? And the guys are like, yeah, whatever you say, boss man, we'll do this. And, and so he gives her a job, pays her more than she's worth, gives her a bonus at the end of the day. This is ridiculous. What it is, and this is grace, it's an extravagant, extravagant answer to his own prayer. It's an extravagant answer to his own prayer. Think about the gospel. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He says, Father, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And he gives his life as an extravagant answer to his own prayer. It's the gospel. It's so good. Verse 17, so Ruth gathered the barley there all day, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. So at the end of the day, she goes home with about 50 pounds worth of barley. 
This would have been roughly two weeks' wages in that day, a little bit more than two weeks' wages. So imagine you wake up, you're poor, homeless, you have no food, you go out, you begin to pick up soda cans so that you can turn them in for money to go to McDonald's and buy a cheeseburger to fill your belly, and then you'll go out and do the whole thing the next day. But instead of coming home with a half-eaten cheeseburger to share with your bitter mother-in-law, you come home with a gigantic 50-pound bag of barley with, you know, about two weeks' wages. So let's say, you know, you, you come home with a, with a check worth $2,000 and um, a doggy bag with a big, juicy steak from Texas T-Bone, and you plop it on the table for her. Yeah. Not a bad day, right? This is the loving kindness of God. God is pleased to pour out extravagant and abundant blessings on his people. He wants to bless Boaz. He wants to bless Ruth and Naomi, but also he wants to bless you. This isn't just a good story. It's a gospel story. That means it has implications for us as well. A good friend of mine told me the other day, he said, if you are not slightly embarrassed by the abundance of God's blessing, then you aren't receiving all that he has for you. Don't ever apologize for how God has blessed your life. Work hard and let God bless big. Because he is a loving father, because he is a kind God, he wants to pour out his love and affection on you. Finally, Ruth makes it home. We've got to hurry through these next few moments. Finally, Ruth makes it home. She walks through the door. She's drenched in sweat from carrying a 50-pound bag several miles back home. She busts through the door, and Naomi's there. She's been moping around all day. She's still in her pajamas. She's been whining and sniveling all day. She drops this big bag in the room. Naomi says, verse 19, where did you gather all this grain today? Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth tells her what happened. She tells her about Boaz and, you know, you know the, the meal and everything. And, and Naomi says this, may the Lord bless him. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to our dead husband or your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. So what she's saying is that Boaz is in line to be one of the people to really take care of them and to look out for them. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week. And God is proving himself sweet again. And Naomi instantly moves from bitterness to blessing. And I, I initially have a hard time with this because I'm like, well, Naomi, if you can't trust God in the bad times, how are you supposed to trust God in the good times? right? You need to be faithful in the bad times. And I'm not happy with Naomi because she's sitting around, you know, God is not nice to me. He's raised his fist against me. When it's your stupid idiot husband, Elimelech, that was the one who took you out of God's good graces anyway. And I'm just really angry with Naomi for now being all bitter and now being all, oh, everybody's so cool and God is good. And now it's a blessing because good things are happening to her. And it frustrated me until I read Romans chapter two, verse four, and it exposes me. It says this, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? And we have to stop, and I'm talking to myself, Chris, you have to stop thinking that the only way that God can save and the only way that he can get people's attention is through his lightning bolt and whipping people and beating people and making life miserable so people will come back to him. God is saying, my kindness, my love, my blessing, the outpouring of my goodness is designed to bring you to relationship with me. Look and see how good of a father I am and come and be a part of my family. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. In verse 22, Naomi tells Ruth, good, do as he said, my daughter. Stay with this young, stay with this young woman right there through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. And she's like, yeah, stay there. You know, it's safe there. You know, but I just want to say, yeah, right, Naomi. 
Like, I know why you want her to stay in his field, right? Because mothers-in-law meddle, that's what they do. Like, if there's somebody single, they're going to they're gonna find him a man, right? This is what they do. And Naomi is beside herself. She's blessing everybody all around. What's changed? She has hope. Boaz has reminded her that God is and then the relationship, the romance of the story just goes cold. The, the barley harvest ends and it's the wheat harvest and, and they're continuing, but there's no more like romance. There's no more relationship. Like when, when Ruth is walking home with a big bag of barley and she takes a selfie with the hashtag God is good, thanks Boaz, no filter. Boaz doesn't even like it, right? Doesn't even like that page. What's his deal? Does he not get it? Harvest is coming to an end and their relationship hasn't progressed, but God isn't done with these two because as good as this story is at this moment, the best is yet to come. Stand your feet all across. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you would like to connect with us or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com.